This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for October 3rd, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we start with a roundup of daily news stories, and then we hear from David Sandwell and why it might be best to just map the bottom of the ocean from outer space. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. Now we have Gia Yu, an intern for our daily news site. She's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on how what we can't hear might actually hurt us. Humans can hear sounds with frequencies between 20 hertz and 20,000 hertz, but sound waves outside that range still can interact with the ear, even though it's not interpreted as sounds all the way into our brains. The question before us today is, can these seemingly silent sounds hurt us? So Gia, let's start with the source of these types of sounds. What makes a noise we can't hear? Anything below 250 hertz tend to be either uh, inaudible or barely audible, and people don't always know when they're exposed to them. So these can be a wind turbine or a roaring crowd at a football game. In this study, what did the participants have to do? What did they hear, and how did they hear it? The participants all had normal hearing, and they basically sat inside a soundproof booth. They listened to like a 30 hertz sound for 90 seconds, and the sound is a deep, vibrating noise. So pretty much what you might hear if you open your car windows while you're driving fast down the highway. Oh, yeah, that one, if you open one window, you get that thumping, right? thrumming noise. I know exactly what you're talking about. And when the researchers had them listen, what measurements did they take after exposure to the sound? The healthy human ear itself actually emits occasional faint whistling sounds, and that's what the researchers recorded after the noise ended. And they found that normally a healthy ear emits like a stable sound over short time periods. But in the study, after the noise ended, the participants' ears emitted oscillating sounds that are alternatively stronger and weaker. 
This isn't exactly ear damage, just a change in the spontaneous emission. So is it heading in the direction of damage? Yeah, the researchers think that oscillation means the ear may be temporarily more prone to damage after being exposed to low-frequency sounds. And they think it's possible that if you're exposed to low-frequency sounds for a longer time, it may have a permanent effect. Are they going to follow this up with other sounds, maybe sounds we're being exposed to out in the real world? Yes. As a next step, they're actually going to look at how the ear reacts to noises rather than silence after they're exposed to low-frequency sound. Next up, we have a story on tracking anthrax in zebras. I hate to say it, but when I hear about anthrax transmission, I usually think of human-assisted anthrax transmission, like through contaminated goods, blankets, or even through the mail. But anthrax is actually a soil-borne bacteria that is able to circulate in some pretty mysterious ways. What are some of the oddities researchers have noted about this pathogen? Anthrax is actually a silent killer on the African savanna, and it can quietly knock off zebras and other herbivores. The pathogen actually starts out as a hardy spore that can linger for years in the environment, and once it finds its way inside the body of an unsuspecting host, it eventually matures into an active state. So there are still many unanswered questions about how this pathogen actually gets transmitted and why certain species like the zebras are more affected than others. Hmm. This research, the study here, starts with one scientist's observation from just looking at photos. What did they see and what did they notice in those photos? The researchers actually reviewed photos of national parks in northern Namibia, and they noticed that the vegetation growing around the zebra carcasses had an especially lush and green appearance. So they had the idea that maybe these carcasses can play a role in anthrax transmission. After making this observation, they then went to the park and set up a pretty complicated study. Can you describe it? Sure. So they actually selected 26 adult zebra carcasses. And so animals at 13 sites were determined to have died from anthrax, and the other 13 sites served as controls. So using motion-sensing cameras, the researchers captured animals visiting these sites, and they analyzed the photos to see if the animals were grazing or just passing by. And they also test these sites annually for the presence of anthrax on these vegetation and in the soil. And were zebras particularly attracted to grass that had anthrax in it? Yes. What the researchers found was that animals were actually equally likely to visit the anthrax-laden sites as the control sites. But animals were four times more likely to graze at anthrax sites. And zebras in particular showed the strongest preference for munching on the infected grass. And they also have the highest incidence of anthrax infection. Does this research explain anthrax outbreaks beyond those in this specific park? No, unfortunately. The study doesn't explain anthrax outbreaks in other parts of the world, like northern Canada, China, or Texas. The researchers actually want to look at animal movement patterns and weather to understand how the pathogen triggers outbreaks on wider geographic and ecological levels. Lastly, we have a story on how much sea monkeys contribute to the movement of the ocean. Okay, Gia, we know the wind contributes greatly to mixing water from the surface with deeper waters and that this mixing is very important for bringing nutrients from down below to the tiny light harvesting organisms on the top. What role, what possible role could sea monkeys play in all of this? 
Right, small marine creatures like sea monkeys might help such processes because they migrate to the ocean surface every night to forage, and then they return to the safety of the unlit depth during daylight hours. Their legs, their kicking legs, actually can create small swirls. The idea is that it's possible tiny legs on tiny sea monkeys, all kicking together, might move water up and down on a daily cycle. And then the researchers were like, "Let's use lasers to look into that." How exactly. Does this work? I know. Sea monkeys are actually attracted to blue lasers, so the researchers shone blue lasers into the tank and move it slowly up and down to control the sea monkeys' movements. And they also added a lot of silver-coated microspheres to the water and illuminated the microspheres with a red laser. So red is a color that doesn't affect shrimp behavior, but it helps the researchers visualize the swirls and eddies generated by the shrimp. And then they got it all on film. That's right. But this lab experiment doesn't approximate all the conditions of the ocean. For example, that colder water is heavier than warmer water. Is it possible that in the wild this might not work out? Yeah, there's a real possibility of that. In fact, the upper and lower layers of the sea are very different in their density, and theoretically, the stratification would reduce the efficiency of any biomixing of the water. Previously, scientists actually studied effects of large crowds of water fleas as they migrate up and down in a tank of stratified water. They found that biomixing generated by the swimming water fleas are stifled by the stratification. So the researchers actually plan to look at effects of sea monkey migrations in stratified waters and see if the sea monkeys might be better mixers than the water fleas. Okay, what else is on the site this week, Gia? Well, Sarah, on the site this week, we have a story on how scientists have found a giant rectangle underneath the largest dark spot on the moon's near side, and we also have a story about an evolutionary arms race that our genome is waging against itself. For Science Insider, we are continuing our Ebola coverage following the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's announcement of the first diagnosis of Ebola in the United States, and we also have a story on the new EU research chief candidate. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Jia. Thank you, Sarah. Jia Yu is an intern for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog Science Insider. At news.sciencemag.org. The land under the Earth's oceans is one of the least explored terrains in our solar system. I spoke with David Sanwell about why it has remained a mystery for so long, and what new gravity maps made with satellite data have been able to reveal. Deep oceans remain as one of the last really unexplored places in the solar system. And we really know more now about Mercury. We just had a mission to Mercury, and Venus. We know a lot about Venus, and we know really a lot about Mars. But the deep oceans are unexplored. They're hard to explore. I think of them as like another planet because the oceans are very different from the continents. And why is it so hard to explore the bottom of the ocean? What are some of the hurdles? Well, when we explore the land, we can use remote sensing satellites. Using optical techniques or radar techniques, and get very high-resolution images that you see in Google Earth, that kind of thing. Also, get high-resolution topography. But in the oceans, we have this 4,000-meter-thick layer of water that prevents any electromagnetic radiation from getting to the bottom. So, you have to do it acoustically, basically. Go out with a ship, with a sonar. The ship goes very slowly, about 
12 knots. So, so far, only about 10% of the oceans have been mapped this way, and it would take about 125 years to completely map the oceans. How are these new maps that we're going to talk about today, how are they made? Okay, so this uses a very different technology. It's much lower resolution than the shipboard measurements, but it provides global coverage. And the way it works is it's a satellite orbiting the Earth, and it has a radar that measures the topography of the ocean surface to an accuracy of a few centimeters. And this topography of the ocean surface, you think of it as being an ice spherical surface or whatever, but it has these bumps and dips in the surface. They're maybe 10 centimeters tall, and these reflect features on the bottom of the ocean. When you have a seamount on the bottom, it has an extra gravitational attraction causing the water to pile up over that seamount. So by mapping out the ocean surface topography with these radars, you can indirectly get a map of the bottom of the ocean, a low-resolution map but a global coverage. Wow. But you're talking about the surface of the ocean. Isn't that covered with waves and things that are moving? Oh, yeah. So the waves are one of our noise sources. And the way the radar works is it takes billions and billions of measurements and averages out the waves. There are things like tides that we have to correct for. But over the past couple decades, this technique has really evolved, and we're now able to see a lot of detail. And what were some of the surprising features that you were able to pick out with this new mapping? We've had maps from previous altimeter missions, mostly in the 1990s, and they provided an overview of the plate tectonic structure of the oceans. But now we can see at much smaller resolution than before. So what we're really seeing is all the small-scale tectonic features. These would be fracture zones and abyssal hill fabric, and also lots of small seamounts that weren't resolved previously. Our paper is focused on where these some of these fracture zones intersect the margins of the continents, and those are particularly difficult areas because all those fracture zones are covered by thick sediments that came off the continents during the last couple hundred million years. So that's sort of the new areas. With this technique, you're able to distinguish between sediment and actual tectonic plates. Yeah, sedimented seafloor is pretty flat. You know, the sediments rain down and they make this nice flat seafloor, which prevents you from seeing anything with a normal echo sounder. But beneath that sediment, there's the pre-existing rough seafloor generated by the tectonics, and you see the gravitational effect of that boundary in the ocean surface. Now that you can see these boundaries better and and these other features, is it going to help explain better the history of the formation of the continents or improve our understanding of tectonics? As I said earlier, the continents and oceans are really very different. The continents are, continental crust is billions of years old, and the average age of the oceanic crust is only 700 million years. So we've really learned about the early rifting of the continents. When the continents began to rift, they formed these ridges and transform faults And then as time goes on, these get buried by sediments. And we want to be able to see that exact connection between the oceanic and continental crust. We haven't been able to see it before, but now we can see it in really fine detail. This enables one then to go out with other techniques like seismic techniques or other types of sonar and map things in detail. So it's a really good way of targeting future surveys. One of the things I noticed in the paper was that you found a lot of previously undiscovered volcanoes What does it mean that there are so many of them? I guess to explain this, if you made a histogram of the number of volcanoes taller than a certain size, like Hawaii is the biggest volcano on our planet, and then you get more volcanoes that are shorter, and the previous satellite gravity maps could resolve all volcanoes 
taller than about 2,000 meters, and there's about 5,000 of those volcanoes. But the smaller volcanoes are now becoming imaged in the new gravity data, and this is a logarithmic scale, so we're going to see thousands, maybe 20,000 new volcanoes in this data set. We still need to spend some time looking through all the data, finding these features. Now, when I looked on Google Maps, it tries to approximate what the ocean floor looks like. Are they going to take this data and improve what we see when we get directions? Yes, exactly. So let me explain what's in Google Earth. When you look in Google Earth, out in the oceans, the seafloor in some places looks really blurry. And in other places, it looks really high resolution. And what you're seeing there in the blurry areas is this gravity data mapped into seafloor topography. And this is something that we've been providing to Google. And then where it's really high resolution, that's the places where the ships have gone along and made their sonar surveys at high resolution. And then you get a really sense of how much the seafloor has been mapped. In the southern hemisphere, there's not much mapping, but around Hawaii and San Diego and, and so on, there's really complete coverage. So yeah, Google Earth uses these data to create their global seafloor model. Very cool. Are you involved in sending experiments up to the satellites? Are you involved in writing the programs to analyze this? What's been your position? Yeah, so I'm more of a derivative scientist. I take the data that comes from the satellites. We do a lot of specialized processing to tease out this gravity information. There's another co-author. His name is Richard Francis, and he's the lead engineer on this satellite called Cryosat. And Cryosat is really the star of the show here because it's the only satellite altimeter that we've had in the last, say, 20 years that that has been able to collect these kind of data. And from the name Cryosat, you'd think, well, it's really going to be used for ice. And that's really why it was launched. But they operated over the ocean. And so we're getting sort of a bonus data set. This is just something that was never envisioned by the original Cryosat mission, but it's providing the spectacular view of the ocean. And then there's upcoming missions. There's a Chinese mission called HY2 and so on. So I think this will continue to get better, but the big step was Cryosat when it was launched in 2010. Okay. David, thanks so much for talking with me. Okay. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. David Sanwell and colleagues describe their new maps of the ocean floor in this week's issue. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. 
When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.